followers. Welcome to Mentally Sound's Life in Lockdown podcast series. This is episode 75. I'm Ricky Thamen and I'm your host for the next hour. Mentally Sound is a mental health and mental well-being show. The idea is that myself and guests talk candidly and its substance about anything and everything to do with mental health. So on that basis, as a disclaimer, we do urge you to go and see your GP, your crisis centre, your therapist, if you find the topics of our following discussions distressing for you. A reminder that Mentally Sound is a podcast, formerly a radio show, that pre-existed the pandemic and lockdown, so we've adapted to a podcast medium for the meantime, during and post-lockdown. If you listen to us on Spice FM, Newcastle's fantastic community radio station from the heart of the West End, you can tune in via 98.8 FM or online via the website at spicefm.co.uk and we're on air on Tuesdays at 1pm and repeated on Saturdays at 3pm. If you'd like to get in touch, perhaps be signposted to a guest or seek advice from our therapist, you can email us at mentallysound at spicefm.co.uk or get in touch via social media, where we have links to all our shows as well. On Twitter, we're at underscore mentally sound. On Instagram, we're at mentally sound radio. And on Facebook, it's mentally sound radio show. And incidentally, on our Facebook header page, you'll find our updated archives with all our podcasts and all the relevant topics listed underneath. We're also on the relevant podcast platforms. Look up mentally sound on clip, spelled C-I-Y-P, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, Radio Public, Breaker and Apple Podcasts. So on the show this week, we have a variety of guests because there's a special compilation. Show 75 is our special festive show. So we'll be looking back at some recent interviews and picking out some interesting clips from them. uh, Ones which I found very interesting. And uh, yeah, please enjoy. Hope you had a very good Christmas. Looking forward to the new year. This is our special festive edition, as I say. So thank you for listening and supporting Mentally Sound throughout these podcasts for the last two years. And uh, yeah, look forward to a happy 2022. Thanks very much. In our first clip, I'm joined by our therapist, Ami Mirza. This was the first time I saw him in person for about a year and a half. Of course, the restrictions at ease by that time, and we met at the Kyber Cafe in the West Road, and we talked about human and human society behaviour over the past year, now that we're in two years of lockdown, and how the vaccines have changed our outlook in the pandemic. I mean, you'd like to think if it could go in some way for people to acknowledge it, but, you know, as... As human beings, we we always agree to disagree, or disagree to disagree, yeah. or agree to agree. That is in our nature. Mm-hmm. That is what debate is. Yeah. That is what philosophy is. Yeah. You know, de- development, and that is where what's underpinned by everything. Yeah. Um, the the cases are very far few between. I know a couple of people who have died that because they, they didn't get the vaccine. I'm not going to say because, yeah. but they hadn't been vaccinated and they died. Uh, you know, over the last couple of months. Uh, so, you know, what do we do with this information? Do we turn around and say, look, you all need to get a vaccination. Yeah, but I'm terrified of it. But they died because of this. You see, the, the, the problem with this uh, pandemic is it's very indiscriminate. It, it's, it's, there's no pattern there. Yeah. You know, and that's yeah. the problem yeah. with everything. There's a pattern. I mean, you know, we talk about the flu. Yeah. There's a pattern. 
we know it's going to affect older people, let's give them the flu jab, we can ride it out. But we haven't built up the immunities or the antibodies yet, yet not all of us, to ride this pandemic Absolutely. out. And that is the reality. Do you know, I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, um, I think it was Madonna, um, I keep name dropping a lot of people in this podcast, but I hope people can bear with me with this. But um, She sent, a, I think it was an Instagram post saying that this this virus is very stealth, in that it doesn't care how how wealthy you are, um, how big your house is, it can still get you as well as the other person. And I think to a large extent people agreed with that. But as the virus kind of, you know, made its way through society, what was evident was that those people who are of an advantage, i.e. big house, big garden, who could use space to their advantage, um, whereas people who might be stuck in tower blocks, they were a bit disadvantaged living in tight spaces. So. Yeah. There is a there is a difference there, isn't it? When when you look at it, you know, you think of a tale of two cities, you know, the rich and the poor. It was the poorest who were disproportionately kind of affected by this. Wouldn't you agree? It did. I mean, that's what the virus has identified, hasn't it? Um, poverty, the problems, that, you know, the social problems that we have, you know, within the communities and everything. It, it did. It, 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 it highlighted a number of those issues, socio-economic issues, yes. you know, and I mean, you know, to the, the, the juxtapose them with that people living in big houses, I don't think that's the situation. I think what it basically is, is it identified how much people were suffering, yeah. you know, as we talk about now, about the reality of that £20 uplift in benefits, yeah, and, 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 you know, the, what, why, why did we need that if people were doing okay? Yeah. They weren't doing okay. And now the reality with this gas bill is what's going to happen now is the, the, the people who are paying, you know, £80 a month gas are paying £100, but they've lost, a, they've lost £20 on top yeah. of their benefits and it's just gone through. Next thing you know, they're £100 in debt. Yeah. It's just knocked the, 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 the seal off. I'm glad you mentioned again. universal credit because I know, I know it's related to politics, of course it is, but we have mentioned politics universal credit in terms of you know discussions with food banks and stuff and the NUFC food bank on the last podcast um, talked about this particularly um, but we're not out we're not out of the woods yet and the people at the top keep saying that this uplift was only meant to be temporary but we're still not out of the woods so to me the two aren't synchronized so how do you think that, that do you know what the the answers there within their response yeah. it was only meant to be temporary but why was it temporary when there was a need for it yeah. now it's been identified that there is a need for it because everything's gone up yeah. i mean you know I, I think i mentioned it previously as a neighbor of mine he's they're a family of four and his normal shop six seven months ago it was 140 pound a week because they shop weekly yeah you know and people can identify that he said his shopping's gone up to over 200 pound wow a week. A week for him and his family, or just yeah, him and his family, because they get the regular shop. And he says we buy the same things. You know, everything has risen. Everything's gone. You might not notice it with milk or bread, because that's but you go and have a look at oh, everything else in prices. Yeah. Even so, pre-pandemic, I noticed prices yeah. gone up. Yeah. And, they, and and they've gone, haven't they? So I mean, we could think of you know whatever the theories are behind this, whatever they're underpinned by. Basically, you know society is in need it always has been in need and you know it pains me every time someone even we have to use the word food bank in a developed oh, country yeah. honestly it causes me so much distress that we have to sit there and discuss food banks it's very dickensian isn't it it is it is, yeah. it is. um I'm a, people the listeners might know that i'm active in a group called psychologists for social change and what we try and identify is that whenever there's like the Whenever the welfare system breaks, when 
people don't get as much money and how how that can infect people on a psychological level. From your point of view, what have you noticed on that sort of basis that when people have their money taken away from them when they depend on it? I mean, you gave an example there. But what actually what actually does to a person psychologically? Because um, it, it's almost like breaking them down, isn't it? Made them feel they might lose their dignity or they're not worth it. They're not equal to other people who are fortunate to be in work. But of course, a lot of people going to food banks are in work as well. So I can give... Um a very good example, which you will remember, when there was changes to the disability living allowance yeah. and the psychological impact on that. Yeah. Uh, I was actually working at one of the charities. The psychological impact of that was, before it even came into force, there was a number people. There was a number of suicides. People just catastrophize what rightly so in some cases yeah, yeah. what would happen to them and they couldn't live mm -hmm. so this is the same scenario here yeah. I mean you know it's they always say you know stress is the future and all the depressions from the past so try to live in the present but how can you live in the present if you feel you're gonna lose you know 20% of your money coming in what you feed your children with yeah you go back Absolutely. to food and fuel poverty it's been going for years you know where the, the one of, I was talking to one of the headmistress in one of the schools here and we were um, discussing food and fuel poverty and she was saying look we, we had to set up a breakfast club because the, the parents were either oh, yeah. give kids breakfast or put a fiver on the, on the gas and the electric yeah, yeah, yeah. and then you've got other things I mean I'm not going to get too political here but you know these politicians or we pay them thousands of pounds a year to solve the problem sit there and degrade the working class and victimize them it's yeah. their fault yeah yet they're sitting there doing nothing and when really those right. when those same people talk about well our solution to, to this crisis is we want to make wages bigger we want to make more job security but that doesn't happen overnight that's a long-term project so we're thinking short-term because people are actually desperate aren't we and people might say oh it's a sticking plaster but yes it is a sticking plaster but there's no reason why the short-term and the long-term can work together do you know what I mean? Or am yeah. I being too romantic in that case? No, I mean, it's good to be right. And I apologise, I nearly ranted off there about my thoughts no, on no, politicians. No. But um, I feel we're surrounded by anxiety and stresses. Every time we turn on the news, look at this silly fuel crisis, what we have now, yeah. which has come from nowhere, and, and the toilet paper crisis. That in itself should show in the direction that society rushes as soon as it feels it's yeah. threatened. Yeah. Even, even any killing of being threatened. And we're seeing, I'm, I'm really interested because I was listening to another station earlier in the day and they talked to a therapist similar like yourself about the um, what goes on psychologically behind panic buying. Mm -hmm. And he described it as very animalistic. Yeah. That in animal kingdom that happens as well. That mm -hmm. when we fear that our resources are shrinking, yeah. we do our utmost, a bit like a squirrel wants to gather as many nuts, yeah. that kind of thing. From your point of view, would you agree with that or do you have another I do take agree on with well? that, but I think it's, in, in a developed country, it's, yeah. it's um, you know, the panic buying is loss. It's it's attached to loss. We feel we're going to lose something. Right. You know, so Like the, we did at the beginning of the pandemic, there was an element of panic buying then as well, wasn't there? Well, it was a massive element of panic buying, wasn't it? And we had the pros and cons of it. But, you know, this is this is because it's, it's also attached to the thing of, um, again, going back to the media, the films that we watch, how many films have we seen about the end of the world? Yeah. And you know, the, the, the romantic end of those is where the person just holds his arm up and accepts it as the wave rushes over the head. But the reality is, people are never going to do that. Yeah.
And in our second clip, I talked to Steve End, who's written a book, Football for Brains, a quiz book which raises issues around dementia. And also we talk about here the neurological benefits about quizzing and what it can do to our brains, especially when it comes to people who are beginning to suffer from dementia. Um, you mentioned uh, memorabilia there. I mean, it's something that, that, all, that you know us football fans, um, you know, whether it's programs, shirts, um, and in your research, how much does that play in terms of your neuro, neurological sort of and and cognitive sort of benefits towards um, someone who has experienced a dementia? Not necessarily, you know, going through it themselves, or um, but it's always good to they, they say with quizzes the benefits of quizzes. It's all, you know the phrase memory joggers that you use. It's it's always a benefit to to test our brains every now and then, isn't it? To to um, it's plus, perhaps it's the backbone to why we all you know watch quiz shows and enjoy a quiz because we we like to sort of um, test our knowledge. But I know you had you you had research and and chats to a doctor you mentioned there. But was it something that they mentioned how beneficial doing a decent quiz every now and then can do to a person and a person's well being? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, in, in particular, the, the people with um, latter stages of dementia mm. and, and, and things like that, you, you could say something to them, um, you know, five minutes ago, and then obviously they, they're not going to know it 10 minutes later. But yeah. if, if you maybe keep stimulating them, then mm. they may, they'll, they'll keep repeating it or mm. the answer or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, Question of sport. That's a that's a prime example when they have the picture boards and different things like that. Yeah. Um. You know, it it it's you know you're, you're kind of. I always play against my wife. And my wife knows a bit about football and sport and things like that as well. Mm-hmm. But you know, it, it's it, it's good to mm-hmm. look at it and, and and like the past and things like that, or the you know the shirts or the programs and and, and pictures. Yeah. You know, if, if a certain person used to be you know like like a Newcastle supporter. And, um, you know, getting get a picture of Alan Shearer or Kieran Dyer or, you know, or, you know, Kevin Keegan back in the day and, you know, going going back like that, they'll, you know, it, it does stimulate their brains and puts a smile on their face. Mm, absolutely. Yes. Um, and of course, when in terms of in terms of football and the whole dimension link, a lot of, you know, the the the, the current hot topic in terms of that in relation to the, the heading of the actual football um the first i heard of it and probably you know i'm sure you're aware was i think the family of jeff astell the late, late jeff astell uh continue now to campaign on this um of course we mentioned alan Shearer's documentary it was a really nice documentary called finding jack regarding um the late jack charlton and of course that we know that his brother bobby is also going through the same thing but um now, a very important football match um, happened recently, which we lo- alluded to. A local up to here, um, County Durham side Spennymoor um, took part in a match where... Was was heading completely excluded or was it limited? Um, because um, you, you've had some re- insight into this, haven't you? You've been in touch with the club. Yeah, and the, the first half, the heading was completely um, banned out from the, from the game. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the game ended 5-all. Uh, and mm-hmm. um, and it uh, went to a penalty shootout, and one of the teams won on, on, on penalties there. Uh, I mean, they they did. They had a lot of ex professionals there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think Craig Craig Higginett played, and uh, Tommy Miller, who's manager of Spennymoor, he he, he played. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I, I, I contacted them um, probably a couple of weeks ago and, and spoke to one of their directors and um, they they've since um, purchased some some books for the for their club shop there. Right. Okay. Um, so that 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 was really good. Uh, Mr. Wilson, he, he helped me out quite a lot there and, and mm-hmm. uh, was doing quite a lot. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's a it's it's difficult to know how how it's going to go forward whether it'll ever be phased out totally. Um, I think at the moment some of the the, the Premiership managers are um, some are for it and some are against it. Um, well, that was going to be my next question, really. How do you th- how how much do you think this is? How much of a game changer do you think this will be? Because if if heading at all is either restricted or, as you say, you know, um, kept having you know you know for sometimes even just inside the six yard box or like you say the the match just in the first half. I mean, I mean it'll completely. Um, I don't know if the word revolutionize is the right word, but it'll it'll change the com- the game. Uh, like no other, I, I just, I mean, have you had any vision of what it might might look like in future if if this was to taken seriously? If 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 enough um, professionals and clinicians, doctors say that yes, there is a, a very strong link, and we, we we think this should be you know um, looked into more seriously, because think, if it starts what somewhere, it's going to happen everywhere, isn't it? Really? Yeah, I I think um, well uh, uh, under. I think under 11s, they've totally banned it at the moment. Mm. They're not allowed to head her. Uh, I mean, going forward, um, it would probably change the way how a, a defender would probably play. Mm. Um, they would probably have to be a lot, lot more skillful on the ball. Mm. Um, to obviously, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's something that I can't, I can't see being eradicated totally very easily because. If someone's firing a cross in from a from a wing into the middle of the penalty area, yeah. and someone's going to try and attack it, mm. um, it, 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 I think it, it was like a, a lot of the players that that played twenty years ago. Um, if they probably knew now what they you know what they what they'd done in their in their careers. Mm-hmm. Um, whether they, they would have changed or not, it's, it's very difficult to say. Um, it's, but going forward, um, you know, if we can, if we can stop it or or make it safer, that, that that's. How I mean, we one thing, that. one thing worthy of mention is is the fact that forty, fifty plus years ago, the the ball that they used to play with was what <laughs> five, ten times heavier than the ball that they play now. We know that the yeah. ball. Has evolved into a much lighter football now. I mean, I guess that's one way they might go towards it. You know, to com- completely evolve the actual football um, is one way. I guess would you would you say? Yeah, I mean, forty or fifty years ago, it was, it was pure leather, um, and when you know adverse weather conditions. I mean, nowadays a game of football will get cooled off if there's a little bit of snow on the ground. But yeah. going back to the seventies, some of the conditions and the pitches. Mm-hmm. It was like skating rinks and water, and you know, as soon as the football was ten minutes on the ground, yeah. it, it would be, you know, it'd be like kicking a medicine ball and head header in a medicine ball. So yeah, it's, it's they are lighter now, um, but obviously they they're still, you know, if if someone's kicking a football, probably a lot harder perhaps now than what they were then. Mm-hmm. The the impact is is still an impact, I suppose. Um, sure. 
it's, 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 it's difficult to, to say really, but, um, you know, it, like how, how coaches coach in the future, that would all have to obviously change as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's something like I can't see being easily eradicated, but. No, I mean, I can, I can, I can, I can almost hear the purists sort of, you know, shouting in our ears saying, no, don't you dare change it. But I think, uh, the the level of of the the level of the debate where it is right now is it, I think has reached new ground and of course you've written your book and very prominent footballers um, it seems more and more of I mean I think sort of almost half of the the heroic nineteen sixty six team have, have have experienced this so to completely ignore it will be will be foolish and we have need a serious discussion how this is going to change our game for the better you know. Um, on this third clip, I speak to Sam Badcock. I met him recently at the Tyneside Cinema Cafe. And we talk about gambling addiction, how he came over here penniless, and what the industry of gambling needs to do to increase awareness and help for its punters. Before my next question, I mean, when you came up here, like you say, you only had 50 quid on you. How did you manage to sustain yourself whilst you were sleeping rough outside all these different betting shops? I, I, so it's crazy. Like, after you... Um, it's like your body adjusts to not eating food. Wow. It's it's amazing. It's so strange, like how your suffering actually turns into a fascination. Right. Because you go so long without food that you think, surely I'm gonna like, I don't know, drop down. But you don't. But you must have had friends, yeah. and friends and colleagues saying, Sam, this is too much. You know, there's other ways to do this. But were you just sort of very self-driven that this is? You're going to do this no matter what because you think it was the best way to raise awareness of this. Then it's well, well. If a, the truth is that in Liverpool, on you know, I said 214 yeah. days ago, I made a promise. Yeah, yeah. On that day, I'll just say it. On that day, I was going to kill myself. Basically, um, I I found a really peaceful and painless way of doing it after doing a lot of research during the last 10 years. Well, during the last five years, actually. Yeah. Um, and um, my, I got disrupted that day, like, and it it ruined my get out plan. Mm-hmm. And it gave me a bit of time to reevaluate what I was going to do. And so I said, "This is crazy." But I didn't become Sam anymore. Sam died in Liverpool 214 days ago. I know this is dramatic, but yeah. this is what I was thinking at the time. Yeah, yeah. And I was just thinking that um, instead of doing what I was planning on doing. I, I actually just said what I'll do is I'll just do it outside of bet. This is awful, but I said I'd kill myself outside the front of the betting shop. I felt like they were the ones, in a way, like I said when I was 23, I went on a slot machine. They were, in a way, partly responsible for getting me. Their machines got me hooked to gambling. And um, so I felt it, just morally, it just felt right that I, don't wanna, I didn't want to die in my flat on my own, like... And that would you be went, me. You kind of wanted to go out whilst making a point at the same time. Absolutely. I, I just felt it was so important and so morally just that um, what's going on in our high street is the betting shops have got this front on their on their shop window. They've got this um, facade. It says when the fun stops, stop. It, it's trying to say we care about our customers. And then they've got set limits and take breaks. and But... It's actually not true. Yeah. None of it's true. Let me give you an example. Um, I was outside Betfred in Berkeley. I spent a day outside there. 
with my banner about um, six weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And the area manager from Be- um, Betfred came out to see me. And he said they, were, they said they were worried about me and they wanted to see how they could help. Mm-hmm. So he said to me, Sam, how can we help you? So I said to him, you can put your slot machines into members-only areas. Yeah. I said, will you do that? And he said, no. And I was like, why? He said, because we'll lose too much money. And it, before I gave him a benefit of a doubt, but after that... That kind of symbolised the profiteering aspect of a... Yeah, you know, profit ethical, for people. Yeah, yeah, he he yeah. asked me, as a problem gambler who's addicted to their product, their machines... But it missed, at least he yeah. admitted it in a way that you kind of like... I respect for him for yeah. admitting yeah. it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. But I was I was thinking, I actually said to him, if, if you put your slot machines into members-only areas, how good would Betfred look? Like, you would actually be showing that you do actually really do care about your customers. So you had a massive opportunity to really make real dramatic change. Because if Betfred do it, and they're the first ones to lead the way, then all the other companies will hopefully follow. Could a manager yeah. could a manager of an individual betting shop make those changes or would they have to go to head office and something they have to do nationwide? Yes, yeah, so he was only the area manager right. of the northeast. Yeah. So of course he would have to go to yeah. head office. Yeah. And if I had the money, which of course um I keep losing all my money on slot machines every payday, so you notice a particular thing with the way scratch cards are displayed in shops. And it's really a really good point because so much was made about sweets being near tills and how tempting it is to, you know, buy, buy you know, because we have, you know, this sort of uh, beastly crisis or, or crisis in, in terms of how we consume food in this country and the Western world. But you think the same problem lies with, with, with the scratch card thing, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they put the scratch cards right at the till yeah. and they brand the scratch cards. Yeah. Um, like the monopoly thing always was the scratch card for me and i think everyone has their own kind of branding yeah. that they connect to yeah. and uh you know you know we were saying you know it's like cigarettes mm-hmm. the way the way smoking's gone mm-hmm. i feel like gambling is hopefully is following the same route that smoking well many went. shops keep keep cigarettes behind shutters now don't they because yeah. it's it's so detrimental and harmful to our health absolutely so in, in that yeah. in that comparison then how much do you feel that problem gambling is underrated in terms of, you know, how it destroys people in society? There's always... So, I feel like the, it's the minority of people... Actually, I've got a better way of explaining this. Yeah. So, let's just say, for example, I don't know, there's a guy called Jim and he smokes cigarettes. Mm-hmm. And he can go into a betting shop and go on a slot machine and control it. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to smoking cigarettes, he he doesn't win against that addiction that's like his weakness but then you might get a woman I don't know named Jill but she can't go on a slot machine and control herself but she can when it comes to cigarettes like a guy called John he might be able to have a pint but then another guy has one pint and then he'll keep drinking and then he'll keep drinking the next day so what I'm trying to say is everybody in society we all got our own weakness in yeah. some way, shape, or form. And it just so happens that my weakness in life is gambling. Mm-hmm. And so what people might argue, if it's the minority of people that are being affected by gambling and the majority of people are okay, then why should the minority, I don't know, let's say spoil it for the majority? Yeah. Like for example, free bets being banned and gambling adverts being banned. 
there might be people who say, well, I want a free bet. Why should I lose my right to a free bet? Yeah. For, for the minority, they, they should control themselves sort of thing. But again, it comes back to that uh, understanding that, we've again, we've all got our own weaknesses. Sure. And so if people can understand that and get their head around that, and then then this whole country would be a better place because we'd all understand each other and yeah. we'd all help each other and work together yeah. instead of judging each other. And that would be a massive step forward, yeah. Great point. Sam, can you describe for me and the listeners, just exact, for those that don't understand especially, kind of the lure of gambling, not just with slot machines, because, you know, online gambling is a big thing now. Um, just describe as an addict, you know, an addict, um, what that lure is like, I mean... Is it literally like sort of tunnel vision? Yes, this is that. Well, not so. I feel like with it, as you'll know, right? With addiction, it um, comes in all shapes and forms, mm-hmm. and even with mental health, mm-hmm. take addiction out of it. Just mental health in general, mm-hmm. it um, it displays itself in different ways, and yep. everyone reacts differently, but yep. also quite similar, similar at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, to get back to what you said. Um, what happens with me personally doesn't happen like this, I'm sure, for every person, every problem gambler. But for me, what happens is I say to myself, I'm just going to bet £20. And I believe it. And it doesn't, even after 10 years, literally a week ago, I was, I was about to get paid and I was like, I'm not going to gamble this payday. Believing it. But then you've got a voice saying back in your head like, no, because you said that last payday and you said it the payday before, but you say no this payday I'm definitely not going to do it and you believe it and that's part of the illness it it fools you into actually really believing that you yeah. won't do it again yeah. and then you say I'm you relapse mm-hmm. and you say I'm just going to bet 20 pounds but you put that 20 pounds into the machine let's say you lose the 20 quid you think well, if I put another tenner in I might be able to win my 20 pounds back then you might lose that tenner and then you, you're like, well, now I'm 30 and I've only got like, I don't know, let's say you've got like 300 pounds to live on for a month. You're starting to think, well, if I take out my rent, my electric, everything, I'm actually now not going to have enough money to get through the month. So you think, oh no, and then you're panicking. So you think, well, I'll put another tenner in and try and get that. And before you know it, you're in this vicious cycle, this vicious conversation, this vicious, vicious cycle in your head. And what ends up happening to me is I always end up gambling to oblivion. Even if I win, which happens, yeah. I gamble the next day. So I never win. But even though I know I never win, and even though I know that the odds are not great on these machines, and there's better ways of gambling, yeah. I still do it. So it it's, doesn't make any sense. In this fourth clip, once again, I meet Amir Mirza, our therapist, in the Kaiba Cafe on the West Road. We talk about grief, loss, isolation, and Amir talks about what it means to talk about grief when it comes to dealing with children and what emotions they go through as well. Amir, yeah, um, I know that you've gone through grief in your life. This particular um, disease like cancers and other things have kind of touched upon your life. But um, um, how have you dealt with it? Um, I know you gave me some sound advice, but in terms of how you dealt with the past, do you deal with it the same way you've done before? Or is it something you learns you go along has always been a systematic approach to this sort of thing how what a person goes through I, I think the the term systematic can be very misleading at times you know you have the stages of grief um, the five stages would suggest now what I think with those is 
is that's basically when you're at a loss, when you've lost a loved one, someone you're close with, and they've died, you, people look for direction. So, you know, those, those original five stages were made, uh, developed by uh, Kubler-Ross Elizabeth, I think it was in the 60s. Um, okay. And she, she developed them for someone who was terminally ill. Right. Right, so mm -hmm. go through terminal illness, but they've applied them the same. And I think that the, the, it is all underpinned by that people want to look for meaning. Mm -hmm. You know, so, you know, the, the, first, the, the, the first phase is here. You know, you've got denial. We deny that the person's yeah. gone. Yeah. Then you have the anger. Mm -hmm. Then you have the bargaining. Mm -hmm. Then the depression. And then the acceptance. But Sorry, going back to, to one of those. Bargaining. I've not heard that one before. In what, in what ways do you mean bargaining? Um, when we're on pain, we sometimes uh, want to accept that there's nothing we can do you know, or change things. Bargaining is what we start to make deals with. If I do this, will this not happen? What if I right. did this? And this, okay. you know, and that, and you start bargaining with a lot of things, you know what I mean? So people start ruminating over things, I understand thinking, that. well, you know, what if he'd, what if he'd done this? Yeah. Would it have gone this way? Yeah. You know, what if he'd done that? So you, see, you tend to do it yourself. It's a part that you ruminate over a lot, but then not. It's yet. almost like you you're going through the paper trails of history and what what things could have changed that might have made an alternative conclusion to everything. Maybe it's a preparation for not wanting it to happen again. Is that fair? Well, the bargaining is for what you can do to change it. You can't. Yeah. Um, you know, that's that's the thing. It's it's been going on for hundreds of thousands of years, thousands of years, sorry, with uh, you know people dying, but it just doesn't get any easier. Mm -hmm. So I think the structure of the five stages does help people get a little bit of a grounding yeah. because we live in a world of information where we need it you know that's why we have google and wikipedia anything we want to know is at our fingertips so with grief dr google we all go to dr google don't we and you know the most personal thing we pain for one of the most painful things we can have go through yeah. is loss death grief yeah. uh, so you need some kind of stability and direction in there but i mean these you know these five stages can be it, they're not linear they can work at different times yeah. so yeah. it's um, even like the you know the 12 step programs a good example actually yeah. abstinence because yeah. you're going through a loss and you've got every single step helps you come back to where you were mm -hmm. so human emotions they are very complicated but I suppose this makes you realize that it puts them into context yeah what's happening to you might feel totally out of this world and not normal at all but these sort of normalize it in the current context how do you think um the experience of covid has changed the way we we deal with grief do you think it has if anything i was thinking about you know in terms of what you said about bargaining um we have groups now where you've got the you know the justice campaigns the the, the bereaved families justice campaign they want answers they feel the anger, they want to channel their anger, what happened to them. Because after all, this disease blindsided us from nowhere, it just came along. We hadn't heard of COVID two years ago. And all of a sudden, we lost, you know, best part of 200,000 people from it. A lot of families going through grief. People are very angry at how our country dealt with it. Is that part of, is the justice part of it, part of the bargaining as well? But how, the overall frame of things... I think Has just, COVID affected? I think you've just mentioned everything there. Yeah. You know, within the whole stages, you the answer is just 
you've answered everything in that question. Uh, all the causes behind it, what's happened, the management, this. But you see what people have got to realise that they didn't know how to manage it. Yeah, exactly. We were having some of the biggest losses in the world. We were at the top of the list. Now we're starting to drop down there and people are starting to go up. So everybody was finding their feet. Yeah. Everybody's still finding their feet. So what are people's responses? How do you appease the masses of something you can't control? Yeah. That's a difficulty, isn't it? Yeah. You know, when you don't have an answer, people go into panic mode, don't they? Some people can panic. You know, some people can sit back and and you know become introverts. Some people are extroverts, so the introvert reacts in a certain way, the extrovert reacts in another way. You know, we want to go out there and fight. And both of them are valid, aren't they? There's no right or wrong way. This, I mean, they, they give validation. Yeah. The, the right language, they give you validation. So if you want to go out there and st throw stones at the police, that validates for you, like, you know, I, I don't understand, you know, why they're, they're getting instructed by the powers that be, but yet you go out to go and fight with the police to, to, really to, to, to valid, get some validation yeah. about uh, a disease, a pandemic, which we still aren't able to control up to the point we don't know anything about. It's almost like, as well, I always felt in dealing with grief, right from childhood until now, it's a, there's, almost an, there's also an element of fear of how, you, one, how people might perceive how you deal with it. So if one's choice, for example, was just to continue doing their everyday thing, because in their own mind, that's how they deal with it. But they might fear that to others, it might feel like they don't care, or maybe the... the, the the grief hasn't sunk in or maybe they didn't care too much about the person that they've lost but it's all down to the individual and there is that worry isn't there how might other people feel but part of part of what one wants to make you think well sod what others think just do what you need to do that makes you go through it it's it's it isn't it, it is that ricky but i mean putting it in another way is how you present and how you are perceived yeah so, you know, as you said, some people might internalise grief, some people might externalise it. It's still going to affect people the same way. I mean, you know, it's getting to the point where I've seen people have asked, oh, you know, a parent died nine years ago, have you still seen them now in that way? But then internalising it, oh, their parent died nine years ago, he's never even spoke about it. Yeah. You know, in a sense, grief is very personal. Mm -hmm. It touches the self, it touches the soul. Mm -hmm. You know, you're gone, you're leaving the world. Mm -hmm. So... It's what it means to the individual. Who am I to judge? So when people, I mean, I had, after my father passed, I had some, an element of bereavement counselling. Um, is that something that you've done in the past? And how yeah, I work with children now with bereavement. Yeah. Yeah. That's and you work with. with those same stages as mentioned before. No. Is it as effective with kids as it is with adults, or do you have to take a slightly uh, no, different? No, it's not. Uh, what, it, what, what happens with children is, children, yeah. children are very basic. Uh, I've worked with five-year-olds, uh, whose response is anger and to take charge of the situation because this five-year-old amazingly has their limited interpretation of what's happened and five-year-olds actually worry more about their parents yeah. i've had conversations with these five-year-olds mm -hmm. and and the thing is the parents are more worried about that and by not exposing to them mm -hmm. so the five-year-old six-year-olds are made, coming to their own conclusions yeah, but it yeah. transpires that the anger they're presenting is because they're not being let or able to talk it's almost like they're being sheltered and well, not able they're, to express they're being, themselves they're being wrapped in a blanket yeah. they're being blanketed where they actually need to I only asked it. that before because you often hear adults when they talk about something quite difficult in their childhood a phrase they often use is I didn't know how to process it or I wasn't taught how to process it or um, 
I saw people, I saw elder people crying, but I also cried, but I didn't know why I was crying, sort of thing. You know, it was. Uh, you don't you don't use words like loss and gone to heaven with children? I mean, this is advice against that. What you use is words like death and died, and explaining to them that they don't come back. I mean, you know, amazing changes I've seen with the really young children is when they're able to communicate this through play yeah. and through dialogue. Uh, when they're able to express um, the changes are seen in the house. But the thing is, instinctively, say if one parent's died, the other parent instinctively just wants to protect them. And then the thing is, they're trying to suffer their own loss and their children's loss and trying to carry everything. You don't need to do that. And in the final clip, I speak to author Will Buckingham. And he's just written a book called How We Find Connection in a Disconnected World. After the loss of his wife, he talks about how he finds human connection again. He speaks to me by Zoom all the way from Safine, Bulgaria. And he talks about human connections and particularly how the people of the Northeast are dear to him. You know, just connecting and reconnecting with strangers in our own home and getting that feeling that there was more of a less of a boundary between the inside and the outside. So is it kind of like a, a basically a sort of a, an Airbnb, albeit there's no transaction? All, the only transaction that's going on is between, is like a bit of gift giving, a, a bit of get to know each other kind of thing. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And it's not at all reciprocal as well. So people can come and stay, um, but there's no obligation for them to host you in return. Yeah, okay. So it's all on the basis of, it was all on the basis of just generosity. We did couch surf elsewhere together and individually. In all over the world, in Bulgaria, in America, in China, mm -hmm. but it was just on, on the basis of that kind of openness and generosity. Before Ellie died, in the last few days, really, um, probably about ten days before she died, we talked for the first time about what what I should do afterwards, and that mm -hmm. sense I had of there being no future, mm -hmm. and. Ellie said, you should get away, you should go somewhere else, you should connect with people, um, you should kind of open your doors to, and keep that sense of connection with, with strangers alive. Because that's, she, I remember she said, that's what you do, but also that's what you need. Do you think um, she so said that, in, do, you, do you think she said that knowing, knowing the person that you are and knowing that when it comes to things like grief, that that's something that you could use as a tool as it were to help you get over and you know move on and i think moving on is quite a tough terminology to use moving forward than moving on do you know what i mean yeah and i think it is i think moving forward it has a sense of yeah, there are next steps yeah, um, yeah yeah but you know i mean as you're saying really, with your own experience of grief and everybody's experience of grief i think is incredibly different mm. but there is a sense you don't move on but you can bring the person with you yeah. um, in, your, in your next steps. Sure. So I think that was, I think from Ellie's point of view, she did have a very good understanding. We were together for 13 years, so she had a yeah. good understanding of yeah. who I was. Um, but also I think um, from her point of view, that was how we tried to live. Mm -hmm. And so there's also a sense of continuity with that. And yeah. she was very concerned for not just me but her family her friends mm -hmm. that after her death that we should continue to sort of thrive and flourish i think mm -hmm. there's a story at the beginning of the book which 
I mean, the other thing was shortly after he died, I, you know, the last thing you want to do is, is reach out and speak to new people. You mm. want to draw yourself in, and that's quite understandable. Yeah. Um, so it's for me, it was a bit of a puzzle very shortly after Abby died. It's in the few days after her death, there's a story at the beginning of the book where I'm walking down the street in Leicester, where we were living, and the charity fundraiser comes up and says hello, and they're raising money for breast cancer, which seems like the worst possible thing. Yeah. And she says, hi, how are you? Have you heard about breast cancer? Yeah, yeah. And my immediate response was to just say, I'm sorry, and go past. Yeah. Um, but she has such a friendly open face, and I said, you know, um, I, I have actually. And she said, oh, what do you know? And I said, well, my partner died three or four days ago in the hospice. Mm-hmm. And then there was this pause, and she looked at me and she said, can I give you a hug? Wow, okay. Um, and I said, oh, I, would, I would love that more than anything, thank you. Mm-hmm. So she gave me a hug in the, in the street. I can kind of remember the crackliness of her plastic tabard. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then I, I think, you know, she asked my name, and I asked hers, and we had a little chat, and then I went on. And, you know, that was the last I saw of her. But I remember in that encounter and that sense of an encounter with a stranger and that acknowledgement of the grief with a stranger, there was something incredibly liberating. Mm. um, That's what brought home to me, I think, the wisdom of that advice from Ellie as well, that Mm. keep opening the doors, keep connecting, even if you don't feel like it. Yeah. I mean, I think most of us, um, if not all of us, have have had those kind of um, stranger moments, as it were, where we think, isn't that nice? And that draws me on to my next question, because going back to terminologies and the word stranger, uh, I'm sure I'm sure we're probably of the of a similar generation where when we were kids, we were told not to approach strangers or speak to strangers. Yet in an adult world, um, it, it becomes less, I don't know, uh, there's less to- toxicity about the word. You know, we can openly meet and engage um, we can reconnect with people randomly. Um, is that one of the revelations you think that inspired you with your writing this book? That that the word stranger doesn't have to be something you've got to you know tread carefully with. That that you can you know build bridges surprisingly with people that you share quite a lot with, where you you probably thought you didn't. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's. There is a wisdom in being cautious, cautious of strangers. Yeah. And um, young children are cautious of strangers. Cats are cautious of strangers. We've taken some foster cats in here in Sofia. <laughs> and when um, strangers come to the apartment, strangers to them, they hide behind the sofa. Yeah, yeah. That's a very natural response. Mm-hmm. But I think if you focus only on that caution, you get any part of the picture. Yeah. Because the other thing about human beings is we're massively curious about mm. strangers. We want to know what's going on with them. And there's a pleasure or a kind of excitement in connecting and mm-hmm. in meeting new people and finding the new possibilities they bring. Sure. So the book doesn't diminish the risks and the dangers. And yeah. a lot of the book explores those risks and dangers and how we manage those. Yeah. But also it talks about those... The, 
literal meaning of xenophobia is fear of strangers. Mm-hmm. But and that, I think, is something that we can't fully escape. Sure. But there's the other thing that we have, which people talk about less, which the Greeks called and still call philoxenia, which is desire to connect, love of strangers, friendship, desire to make friendships with strangers. Sure. And so we're working with both of those, with desire to connect and move forwards. Excellent. So would you say, to, to sum it up, it's been, um, I imagine, I can, I can almost tell through your voice how rewarding it, this experience has been for you, writing, but also from a cathartic point of view, do you feel that you have had, you've, had, you've made those steps that your that your late wife was sort of saying and and how you know encourage you to do as have you gone full circle or are you still or are you still continuing that journey you think I think it's um, for me it's a it's a constant journey so it's a constant I constantly have to remind myself that it is worth connecting and mm. it is worth reconnecting mm. I can actually be quite shy I can often want to not connect so sometimes I um, I have to tell myself it's okay to stay home mm-hmm. if you get an in- invitation to something you don't necessarily want to go but if you stay home you know exactly what will happen yeah you know you'll you'll have your tea you'll watch something on Netflix you'll go to bed yeah but if you actually accept that invitation if you actually you know, move forward and you go out and you make those connections you don't know what will happen and there will be some possibility for newness and life to get more interesting and richer and for Exactly. You you make you make all these new trajectories in life, don't you? You end up going to yeah. places where you didn't expect to. I mean i would I wouldn't be doing mentally sound if I didn't for example go down to Newcastle City Centre on World Mental Health Day and meet with a few people and talking about various projects and um yeah, absolutely. I, I think I think you're you're very right on that. Um, before I ask you about how people can can get grab a, a copy of your book, uh, you mentioned the emails about you have a you have a connection to Newcastle. Here we are. You're in Bulgaria. I'm in Newcastle. But what's your link to Newcastle? You you have a little history with the place, don't you? So yeah, in the nineties, I moved to Newcastle to study fine art at Newcastle University. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely fell in love with the city. Yeah. And after I graduated, I moved away for a bit and I moved back to Newcastle. Mm-hmm. So I lived in the West End and then I lived in um, Sandiford and Heaton, all over the place in Newcastle. And it's one of my, one of the cities I love most. Great. Next year, um, Hannah, my current partner, and I were planning to move back to the UK. And Newcastle was really high on our list, and we were Great. looking at places in Newcastle. Actually, it's turned out that we're, we're just going to go over the boards, and we're going to end up in Dundee next oh, year. Okay. Okay. But we're oh. in striking distance. We're in striking distance, so. yeah. Not, not quite a stone throw, but, but uh, a, short, a short train ride at least. <laughs> uh, it is a city I love. Yeah. And actually, I, I don't know if there's um, my first time in Newcastle at the age of 17. I was going to taking a ferry to Denmark, and I got totally lost. They told me in the station where the ferry port was, but they told me where the South Shields ferry port was, mm-hmm. um, rather than the you know, uh, across the North Sea. 
Mm-hmm. And I was confused when I was 17 and I was kind of uh, um, didn't know what I was doing. So I was on the ferry between South and North Shields thinking I'm going to miss my, my trip to Denmark. I'm all on my own. I'm confused. And this old toy couple came over and said, are you okay? You look a bit worried. And I told them I was waiting to go to the ferry. Uh, I was trying to get to the ferry, but I didn't know how to get there. And they said, oh, that's all right. Our car's over in North Shields. We'll take you to the ferry port. And we got, got in, into North Shields. They put me in the car, bundled me in the car, took me to the ferry port, waved me off, made sure I got the ferry. Brilliant. And that was my first ever solo trip. And that was probably one of the first experiences of strangers well, just suddenly. I don't know if it, I don't know if you I don't know if it's a premonition thing, but that was gonna be my tenuous uh, next question. I was gonna say, are the people of the northeast amongst the most generous uh, strangers you've met? And I think you've kind of answered that in a way. it's one of the reasons I love Newcastle and um I'm not I'm not saying this just because I'm on, on a show um, that's, that's kind of broadcast out in Newcastle, but I always find it a place where people were hugely welcoming, hugely hospitable, and really willing to sort of to move forward and to connect with you. Awesome, awesome. Well, I've I got my little my little uh, wish uh, uh, ticked off there. So, <laughs> on that on that note, um, Will. that wraps up episode 75 thank you all for listening our special festive episode of life in lockdown podcast series for mentally sound may i thank all the guests who took part not only in that compilation but throughout the entire 75 podcasts i think um, a bit of a jubilee diamond jubilee episode i think it is that uh, our therapist amy had mentioned to me whilst we were chatting in the cafe in a previous episode so um Thank you all for your support. Thank you for listening. Thanks for supporting us. Thanks as ever to our supporters, the Recovery College, Mental Health Northeast, and of course Spice FM for broadcasting these podcasts. Let's see what 2022 brings to us. Of course, we are sort of on 10 talks about new restrictions from what we understand. Currently, it's been said that no new restrictions will take place between now and the new year. But if it does happen in the new year, please stay safe. Look after your health, in particularly look after your mental health, because that's of the most importance. And um, yeah, as I say, we'll see what New Year brings. Hopefully, we want to bring back our radio show. But as we say, the the podcast format, if we are in uh, some sort of further lockdown, shall continue. This is episode 75, so I didn't want to do more than 80, but let's see how it goes. As I say, we want to get back into the studio and broadcast live and bring in live guests into the studio because we want to meet them face-to-face as well. We want all the signposting to continue. And anyone out there who wants to be part of the show, who wants to tell their story or maybe particular good work that they do in the community, which sort of helps people's well-being out there in society, of course, we want to promote that. So uh, get in touch, um, as I say. We're on all the social media platforms and we're on all the podcast platforms. Look up Mentally Sound online and you should find us instantaneously. But yes, we wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, of course. Um, if you are meeting up for the New Year celebrations, play adhere to the rules and behave safely. Don't put others at risk. Don't put yourself at risk. 
And of course, as ever, as I end all the other shows, um, stay safe, look after your health, look after your mental health. And if you listen to Spice FM, stay tuned for the next show. Look out for Mentally Sound in the New Year. Listen to us again then. In the meantime.